following was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. All right. Well, this is great. It's so wonderful to have uh, all y'all here, to have the cooks back with us. And we've been praying for the car situation. And, of course, to have visitors from out of town and from in town. Um, if you're looking for a church because you've either moved here for school or because you've just been searching for a church closer to home, I uh, would love to talk to you about that. Even if you're not looking for a church, I'd love to talk to you because I love people. So there you go. And we're going to talk this morning a little bit about Christ, our Savior's love for people as a pastor. Um, I'll leave it at that. Let's pray, and then we'll get underway with the Word. Father in heaven, we bless your name. We thank you for your mercies to us in Christ. We thank you for your kindness to us in him. Indeed, we reflect upon the supremacy of his ministry to us as prophet, priest, king, mediator, redeemer, and indeed as good shepherd and pastor. We thank you as well, Lord, for your wisdom which has been displayed in him, in his earthly ministry, and in his present intercession at your right hand, and how through him the Spirit comes and ministers to us in all of our difficulties and in all of our delights, in our trials and in our triumphs. We pray that you would be with us even in the Sunday school hour, that your word would be impressed upon our hearts and our conversation and discussion pleasing to you and profitable to your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, open up in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, we're going to look at the first nine verses and then we're going to jump into John's gospel, kind of looking at a couple different passages detailing Christ's sympathetic earthly ministry. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But Isaiah 42, the first nine verses, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and life-giving word. Give heed to it. God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. 
Amen. You know, we often refer to Christ as prophet, priest, king, redeemer, savior, lord, and even as God. Dr. Piper explained some of that in the sermon this morning, uh, preaching Christ even from Job chapter 28 as the incarnation of eternal wisdom. Indeed, it is Christ himself who sets the standard for all of human conduct and activity. But do we ever really consider, or often consider, I should say, that Christ is our pastor? That yes, he's king, he's prophet, he's priest, he's Lord and Savior, he's even judge of the nations and all the earth. But is he our pastor, that familiar acquaintance whom we have, who sympathetically ministers to our every need in our day-to-day life? Well, Christ himself sets the standard not just for all human conduct, but even uh, for pastoral conduct. And at Greenville Seminary, in my Reformed pastor class with Ian Hamilton, um, I remember him impressing upon us the, the great importance of regarding Christ as the perfect pastor, even to us as ministers of the gospel who are very imperfect, and can't be everywhere all the time, and cannot minister to your every need. We're not infinite, but Christ is. Christ is the perfect pastor, even to us, but also he is the model for every true gospel minister. He is both uh, he who pastors perfectly and he who sets forth for us the example we are to follow as best we can in our own finite capacities as ministers, and certainly as parents. That's the case, too, because you are called to pastor your children. Uh, that, that is one aspect of parenting, is sympathetically shepherding your children's hearts, we might say. So, what does that standard look like? What do we know about Pastor Jesus from his earthly ministry? We're going to consider two passages of Scripture with Isaiah 42 in the background. We'll consider John chapter 4 and John chapter 8. In these two passages, we have different incidents in the earthly ministry of Christ where we really see his pastoral uh, function coming to bear as he ministers to uh, two very broken people. In John chapter 4, to the, um, to the Samaritan woman at the well, and then John chapter 8, to the woman accused of adultery. And I do take that as part of Scripture I don't take that as something that was added after the closure of the canon. That is true word of God. But in these two incidents, we're shown by God's grace and by his spirit, as John describes them to us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are shown how Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord described in Isaiah 42, which I just read. And as a servant of the Lord, he's also our pastor, So he's the servant of the Lord and the good shepherd or pastor of the sheep. These illustrate for us how Christ is the church's paradigmatic pastor. He gives us the paradigm. Uh, He gives us the model upon which all of our ministries and the church's ministry as a whole is to be patterned. So first, um, and I'll show you three things about it, his compassion, his authority, and his aim his pastoral compassion, his pastoral authority, which, you know, your antennas might be going up as good Americans whenever we talk about authority, and then also his pastoral aim, what it is he's, he's going for, his goal, his telos, we might say, as a pastor. 
So first, uh, I want to talk about his compassion. Christ demonstrates compassion to people as a pastor, as a sympathetic pastor, by addressing spiritual needs, that is, those deep, often unseen needs, through addressing felt needs, that is, those things that are very evident to each and every one of us, those things that, that we feel rather uh, in a pronounced fashion, that we feel, oh man, I really need this right now. I need a glass of water. I need uh, someone to defend me in court in the two incidents that we're dealing with in John 4 and 8. And you can fill in the blank. And Jesus doesn't ignore them. In fact, he capitalizes on those felt needs to then address deeper unseen spiritual needs, which oftentimes need to be dug out like so much rare metal out of the earth and from a mining shaft. So look at John 4 with me. John chapter 4. You know, I'm, if you're visiting with us, you may or may not know, Dr. Pipe is going through Job, I'm going through Matthew's Gospel. And if you had asked me before I started Matthew's Gospel what my favorite Gospel was, it would be either John or Luke. I mean, I love all four, obviously, but John or Luke. But now that I've been in Matthew's Gospel for so long, I don't know, it might be Matthew's Gospel. I, I'm not sure, but John is still uh, of inestimable worth. It is very precious. All right, let's just start from um, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Some translations say he needed to pass through Samaria. Christ will address in this incident the felt needs of the Samaritan woman at the well. Notice, because he needed to do so. Geographically, there was no necessity for passing through Samaria. It would be very easy to avoid it. The Jews had a whole way of getting from one Jewish locale to another and avoiding Samaria along the way because they didn't want to go through there. But he needed to do this. Why? Why? Because as our pastor, he addresses our felt needs. This is a principal aspect of his ministry, um, addressing the needs of those to whom he was ministering. It even dictated his travel plans, at least as described for us in the gospel. The reality of need, either for water or for marriage or for worship, and we'll see all three in John chapter 4, was central to Christ's ministry to the woman at the well. All along... Christ knew what lurked underneath the surface of this woman's life. He knew the sin that was hidden um, in the deep recesses of her heart, which she would not be quick to admit. And he uh, would get to that issue, that sin issue in this woman's life, through addressing the felt needs of water and of relationship, of stable relationship. John 8 amplifies this need. If you want to, well, I'll just summarize it briefly. In John chapter 8, there's a woman who's caught in adultery. She's about to be stoned to death. And it, it seems like the sin issue is a little bit closer to the surface, but more immediate than that is some kind of advocate, because nobody's standing up for her at all. Some kind of advocate to stop the overreach of power by the Pharisees in that incident. 
Um, so John 8 then amplifies Christ's ministry of addressing spiritual needs through felt needs. Uh, for there, a woman's life is on the line. It's not just a matter of drawing water from the well or even of having a stable household. Now it's a matter of impending capital punishment at the hands of an angry mob, we might say. And so Christ in that incident then renders judgment to save the woman from her accusers. If we look at John 8 and verse 7, and we'll be jumping around back and forth between these two passages as I just give you an overview of Christ's pastoral ministry, but we hear how Christ renders judgment to rescue this woman. And if you, if you might want to put it this way, give her a second chance at living a life of renewed obedience. In, chap in chapter 8, verse 7, when they, that is the Pharisees, persisted in asking him um, what in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, what then do you say? As they persisted in asking him that question, he, that is Jesus, straightened up, and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. So you see how Jesus renders judgment, answering their question, and saving this woman's life. What is he doing in both of these situations? When he meets a woman at the well, and we'll take a bit of a closer look at that, and in uh, defending this woman caught in adultery, what does Jesus do? In both accounts, to belabor the point a little bit, I'll say it again, Christ is pastor related to human beings with very human problems. That is the need for basic necessities, the need for defense um, against rash expressions of justice or injustice. And what we see here is that by his word and spirit, Christ ministered to these women's felt needs, but he continues to do so today to our felt needs by his word and spirit. It should be the case that when you come to worship and you're seated under the word faithfully preached, that it addresses something that you're actually dealing with in your life. And that'll be different for each of us. And the pastor really can't even plan that out, uh, at least not, not fully. But the spirit will take the word and apply it to those particular situations that you're dealing with in your life. Now, some weeks it'll be very obvious. And you might even think, the minister's talking right to me. How does he even know that? And other times, it, it might not be quite as obvious. It might hit you later on in the week as you're meditating on the Word. But Christ still does this through the ministry which He's appointed and ordained in the church. He ministers to us as whole people in need of pastoral care in every area of our lives. And uh, your pastors here at Antioch, as well as the pastors at other faithful churches in the area, are seeking to handle the word in such a way as to teach you what it says, but also with the Spirit's help to apply it to your life so that you're not left wondering, what do I do with this? Um, but rather, it'll be clear, okay, this is how it affects me this week, even this day, as I seek to rear my children or um, engage at work or continue my studies, whatever the case may be for each of us. So that's the first thing. Christ's earthly ministry, his pastoral ministry, showcases his compassion, his sympathy in addressing spiritual needs through felt needs. The second thing I want to show you from these two incidents, very briefly, is that Christ 
exercises authority in his pastoral ministry. He's not afraid of exercising authority. Um, I will tell you this. If you're in a position of leadership in this world, it is a fearful thing to exercise authority. Mostly because we're representing somebody else, uh, typically, when we do so. And so you want to make sure you get that right. But also, accusations against people and authority uh, are on the right and the left and everywhere in between uh, these days. But Christ doesn't back down, he doesn't shy away from exercising authority in his pastoral ministry. His authority, I would say, drives the narratives at their turning points in both John chapter 4 and John chapter 8. Look at John chapter 4. In this passage, he meets the woman at the well, and she begins to ask him questions about worship, even after he's, uh, he's met her and confronted an issue in her life. Um, she says, Sir, give me this water in verse 15 so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. That is that living water that Christ promises. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Something has shifted now in her appraisal of Christ in his ministry because of what he says at the end of verse 17. He authoritatively shifts the conversation and leads her to a conclusion that's going to be very important for what he'll instruct her uh, in the second half of chapter 4 about worship. So Christ drove the dialogue away from felt needs to spiritual needs here in the second half of verse 17. Now some commentators on this text will then say that the woman, as she gets into worship in verse 20, is trying to throw a diversion into the conversation and pull Jesus away from this uncomfortable conversation about you know, her husbands and, and, and the man that she's with now at, at this point. However, at verse 20, as they get into a conversation about worship, we see Christ's pastoral authority really come into play. It is Christ alone who can direct those who would presume to worship God. Look at verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, that is you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She's getting very close now to the truth of who Christ is, who Jesus is. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He brings it all the way home. Now at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one asked, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. If you look at verse 42, you'll see the end result. Well, 41 and 42. 
uh, well, we'll pick up at 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. It's a word of authority with which he's teaching. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans of Sychar confess Christ's authority as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So he's teaching, he's preaching, he's pastoring, he's addressing needs even as one with authority, making his authority known. That's a central feature of his ministry. Now in John chapter 8, we see something similar. In John 8, Christ caused the Pharisees to abandon their case against a woman caught in adultery. In John 8 verse 9, you have the background, which maybe I should have read before. Um, Oh, no, no, that's the conclusion. I'm sorry. In John 8, verse 9, which I already read, when they heard it, that is what Jesus rendered as judgment, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Christ's words here defeat the Pharisees' case against the woman because he unmasks the essential injustice of their case against her, their hypocrisy. They're even getting out of their lanes and seeking to cast judgment where they had no business casting judgment in this particular situation, even according to the rules of the society of which they were a part. His words convicted the Pharisees in their consciences as well. It not only protected this woman, but actually we can, we can say it protected the Pharisees from doing something that would have incurred God's wrath and judgment upon them. It's very interesting. Something that seems like Christ opposing his enemies, and it certainly was that, is also Christ, in a way, defending his enemies from a stricter, harsher judgment from God. And, of course, that comes to full fruition in the great revival that takes place in Acts chapter 2, as we can assume many of the Pharisees even come to saving faith in Christ. We know that Paul will in in Acts uh, later on. So, his authority most shines forth in his words to the adulteress, though, in verse 11. Uh, Looking at verse 10, Jesus said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And in verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. So Christ renders a judgment, not of condemnation, but uh, I would say of pardon. He acknowledges that she's guilty of something. He says, go and sin no more. But he pardons her. Who can pardon sins? This is one of the big issues in Christ's ministry. Only God can pardon sins. And so in his pastoral ministry, in his care for somebody in their need, he also reveals his unique authority. So too, in our ministry here and in all of our morning worship services, we have a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. Dr. Piper and I do not absolve you of sin. We cannot do that. But we can, from God's word, relay to you the declaration of pardon which Christ gives to all those who confess their sins in truth. And insofar as the word gives us or the scriptures give us the words to speak, we can assure you of the pardon of God. And this is an important function of pastoral ministry that Christ shows for, to us and which we... Um, 
I don't want to say reenact, because that sounds bad, but, but uh, that we incorporate, I should say, into our order of worship week by week. Um, I think it was John Murray who said, the confession of sin and assurance of pardon is the apex of Christian worship. Indeed, it, it is uh, precious to us, because only from that position then can we receive the ministry of the word, which conforms us more and more to the likeness of Christ and new obedience and righteousness. So he pardons her for the past, and he commands her then with authority to live in a particular way in the future. As suggested in the following verse, in verse 12, which is part of the next scene even, it is the light of the world that banishes the darkness. Look at what it says. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So in so doing, in banishing the darkness as the light of the world, Christ provides sight to a people burdened by the blindness of sin. This, too, is an aspect of his authority. Now, as Presbyterians and as Reformed folks, we really emphasize in in our doctrine of the church and our understanding of the church that Christ exercises his authority as the sole head of the church. So does the Pope have any unique authority? No, He claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth. That is the head of the visible church on earth. But that is uh, blasphemy. Christ alone is head of the church. Your pastors are not head of Antioch or (laughs) like your bosses or something like that. We are but ambassadors. We have a real authority conferred upon us, but a very limited authority to declare that which Christ gives us to speak and to direct you to him and to direct you to obey him. So is there submission? Yes. Is there exercise of authority? Yes. But it must never be abused. This authority that Christ has works through the ordained officers of the church, elders and deacons. Men who serve as church officers, therefore, steward an alien authority that belongs to Christ. Officers deny Christ's authority whenever they overstep the biblical limits of their callings. They endanger Christ's church whenever they operate apart from Christ's authority or beyond his authoritative directive. They, I would argue, impede the church's expansion when they fail to exercise the authority granted to them. And conversely, they bless the church insofar as they advance Christ's kingdom as his stewards. It is the advancement of Christ's kingdom Kings have authority of his kingdom that was and is Christ's great spiritual aim in his pastoral ministry. I've been preparing for our 180th anniversary celebration on Saturday, September 16th, coming up. And um, so I've been looking through the history of the church. Sadly, we've lost the old session books. They were stolen maybe 15 years ago out of this building. But we, have, we do have a good amount of material um, available to us. And one thing that really impressed me about little old Antioch is, uh, is that they were very committed to being what's called an old school Presbyterian church. So in the 19th century, you had old school and new school churches. And if we had to boil down the difference between old school Presbyterianism and new school Presbyterianism, it's not like a liberal conservative thing. It, it comes down to a theological difference where the old school guys really emphasized the authority of Christ as head of the church 
and the regulative principle of worship and of church government. That is, however we worship and however we conduct the affairs of the church, it ought to be, it must be uh, congruous in conformity to uh, the royal charter given to us by God and His Word. Everything we do is directed by the Word of God. Now, the new school guys, many of whom were faithful in preaching the gospel and uh, held the word in high esteem. They weren't like theological liberals or something, but they would say that on certain issues, it would be okay to do things that aren't strictly forbidden by the word. But we can be a bit more creative than the old school guys. And one thing I love about Antioch is from the very beginning, there was a commitment by the families that donated the land for this church, this land, the where we are, like 180 years ago, to those who reorganized it again in 1904, where that plaque is, to Dr. Piper and the, the provisional session reorganizing three years ago in 2020, we committed to be an old school Presbyterian church in our government, in our worship, in all of our pastoral ministry, recognizing Christ's authority. One way this was really pictured for us and for me as I go through the history is... Um, Whoever wrote the last history in 96 made the point to say that in the late 19th century, the elders were faithful in exercising church discipline. Why does this stick out to me? Well, the church started in 1843 with 23 folks, and by 18, I think, 56 or so, it had 56 people. Or 1853, it had 56 folks, like three or four elders and a couple deacons. It was not a big church. To exercise church discipline in a small church, that takes a lot of guts and a real commitment to your principles because you lose a couple folks and that can be rather painful, right, <laughs> in a small church. But these guys, they stuck to their guns. And there's even record of the elders at Antioch um, being faithful to the word in the courts of the church, a Presbyterian synod, even standing up for Christ's rights as king of the church when others were trying to maybe compromise a bit on this, that, or the other point, generally regarding evolution and, and things of that nature being taught in the seminary in Columbia. So anyway, we are to really be committed to this principle of Christ's authority as king recognizing as well that that authority has a pastoral dimension, always ordered to the good of God's people and to the glory of God himself. So the third thing that I want to highlight is the spiritual aim or goal of Christ's pastoral ministry. What do you think the spiritual aim or goal of Christ's pastoral ministry as seen in John 4 and John 8 is? Glory of God, good of man. That's kind of the Sunday school answer. You can use that pretty much all the time. But specifically in these passages, I want to contend this, that Christ's spiritual and pastoral aim in his earthly ministry was the full harvest of souls. He was seeking to save the lost, to save all Israel from their sins, recognizing that the fields are white with harvest. This features prominent in Matthew 13, where we have a series of parables about the kingdom, uh, the leaven in the lump, the, the wheat in the tares, and, 
and uh, the mustard seed parables, and we're not going to get into all of them now. It's very prominent in Isaiah 40 and 42 in the consolation of Israel and also in the description of the servant of the Lord. It's about the harvest of souls. And it's also prominent here in these two incidents in John 4 and John 8. In John 4, Christ taught his disciples of the great harvest of the kingdom of God. Look again, if you have your Bible open, look again at John 4. And note, in, in verse 34, the disciples are saying, you should eat something, teacher. Hasn't anyone brought you anything to eat? And he says, in John 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is my goal. My goal is to do this. Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I myself say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. He was speaking of spiritual realities. They're all concerned about his physical needs, and those are important. Jesus was fully man and fully God. He is fully man and fully God. He needed to eat. Um, but he took that, that felt need, that real, spirit, that real physical need, and made a spiritual point by it. Again, uh, showing what I sought to show you in the first place, addressing spiritual needs through physical needs. But here he's talking about his spiritual pastoral aim, the realities that lie behind everything else in his ministry. That is, that he was about the, the business of searching for and saving lost souls. Luke says that explicitly in Luke 19, verse 10. Now in John 8, Christ saved the life of the adulteress, but as I've already pointed out, immediately after that he shifts into a discourse that is significant for understanding his ministry's goal as a whole in describing himself as the light of the world. And then in John 8.32, later on in that uh, same chapter, uh, we read this. Well, 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? This is written on the wall of the CIA's offices in Langley, which is kind of funny. But you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, I, I don't think the CIA has the same mission as Christ. They're certainly not using that verse in the same way. But Christ, in, in this saying of his, in John chapter 8, the same passage describing him defending this adulteress, describing himself as light of the world, he's showing that his goal in coming into the world as the living truth, as wisdom of God incarnate, his goal is to liberate slaves from their slavery to sin. That is, I would say, the most powerful characterization, biblically speaking, of his mission to save sinners from their sins. It's a mission of liberation. I'm not a liberation theologian, like Gustavo Gutierrez or something like that. But the point I'm making is Jesus comes as the new Moses and the new David. He's coming announcing glad tidings of God's mighty deeds of deliverance in the people of Israel. And what is the paradigm for that? It's the exodus. 
It's what we begin and preface the Ten Commandments with. That is, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage or slavery. And Jesus comes to do that anew. He saves people from their sins and from the slavery to sin. He sets us free by his truth. It was for truth that the servant of the Lord came to bring forth justice in Isaiah 42, verse 3, which we read. Likewise, it was for truth that Jesus Christ saved the adulteress from the Pharisees and her sin. How did he do it? By declaring the truth in his just judgment. He who is without sin, you throw the first stone. And nobody could do it. He declared the truth and set them free from this incident, which would have driven them into greater condemnation, but also set her free in her life and told her to go and follow a course of freedom in obedience to God rather than in slavery to her sin. You know, I, um, I used to live in West Philly, and we would do street ministry on 69th Street uh, right there in Upper Darby, just a block from the church. And I'll never forget it. And one time, we, uh, we stopped a woman on the street, asked her our questions about her spiritual life and thinking, and come to find out she has a couple of kids, but she made her living uh, through prostitution. It's heartbreaking. And the thing she kept on saying was, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I'm trapped, I have no option, I have no choice, I can't do otherwise. And what I said to her, in fact, I think I went to John chapter 8, I said, you have options, you have a way out. There are people able to help you, get you away from those, those men who are oppressing you and keeping you trapped, but also you don't have to sin to make a living. Because she, she said, I know this is sinful, and we prayed with her. Um, I didn't see her again. I don't know what happened to her in her life. But the message we gave her was the same message that we at that church would give to all kinds of people that would come and, and share with us rather openly their, their feeling trapped by their sin. And that is, you don't have to do that. You don't have to sin. Christ sets us free from that pattern of behavior. And you mustn't sin. You must follow after him. All right, where was I? Something fundamental there underlies the compassion, the authority, and the aim of Christ's pastoral ministry as we uh, conclude this brief study. Jesus Christ was and is the only man ever to have lived in a state of perfect righteousness. He's the only person ever born that was not born into sin. He's the only one not born by ordinary generation. This is a miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary involving no man. He did not inherit Adam's sin. In the accounts found in John chapter 4 and 8, Christ proved himself then to be the servant of the Lord promised in Isaiah 42. He demonstrated his compassion for sinners by addressing felt needs. He functioned with authority, confounding the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites all around him. And he did this for the sake of the great harvest of souls ordained by the Father and begun by the Spirit. The fundamental goal of Christ's pastoral ministry, and this is where you can give the Sunday school answer if I were to ask you, was and still is the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's the fundamental goal of his pastoral ministry. Christ's salvation of sinners in John 8 glorifies and praises 
God, even as pictured for us in John 4, 39-42, when the Samaritans glorify Him as the Christ. The triad that I brought to bear of compassion, authority, and goal of saving the lost, that triad that shapes Christ's pastoral ministry rests upon that fundamental note, the tonic note, we might say, of the glory of God. And these other things are something like overtones. If, if you know music, a triad is a chord of three notes. The fundamental note is the glory of God that, that would be underneath that chord that rests on top. And so when we know Christ as Savior, Redeemer, Mediator, King, Judge, Prophet, Priest, Son of God, and also as Pastor, when we know Christ as Pastor, that should drive us then to burst out in praise and worship of God the Father through Christ, our worship leader. And when our pastors ascend the pulpit and uh, call us to worship each and Lord, every Lord's Day, they do so as men under authority, indeed merely pronouncing Christ's call to worship to each and every one of us. And they do so by the example of Christ, our pastor and our Savior. We follow Christ in ministering uh, to you all and to each other uh, and to our families for the sake of God's glory, worship, and praise. Now, has anybody ever considered Christ as pastor before? Is that something you've heard before um, in, in other churches? I mean, you've heard Christ as good shepherd, so that, that would be probably the nearest thing. But I want you to reflect on that this week, maybe building off of my sermon last week on, on Psalm 23, where I kind of teased out that picture of Christ as a good shepherd described in Psalm 23. But also, as Dr. Piper uh, preached this morning, we'll continue this evening from Job 28, Christ as uh, the wisdom of God come to man. Reflect upon him as your pastor, that he cares for you and he is available to you, that even if uh, your pastors here are either knocked out getting surgery or laid out with a nasty sinus infection and cold, as Dr. Piper was last week and as I was uh, two and a half weeks ago. Um, you can always appeal to Christ as your pastor and ask him for help and wisdom and direction by his word. In fact, he should be your first recourse because when you come to us, we're just going to direct you to him because we got nothing apart from him otherwise. Um, anyway, we ended a little bit earlier. Are there any questions that anyone might have about anything we discussed or really anything else in general? If not, thank you for your patience. It's kind of a luxury Sunday school. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of question and answer. If you're visiting with us, usually the adult Sunday school is a bit more question and answer as we work through a book together. We're going through right now uh, Thomas Brooks's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Mr. Colvin, one of our interns, is teaching through that. And once he finishes that book, Mr. Spivey, I think, gets the next, uh, the next spot for adult Sunday school. I'm not sure which book they're going to go through. But, all right, we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we bless your name and we thank you for Jesus Christ, our pastor. He who is the good shepherd of our souls, who loves us with an everlasting love, who intercedes for us even as our great high priest and leads us in worship from his exalted position at the right hand of God the Father. 
We pray that you would grant us your spirit such that we would live in joyful submission to his authority, in full awareness of his sympathy, and with enduring and indefatigable commitment to his goal of ushering in and, and calling to repentance all the elect. Lord, we pray for our neighbors here in Spartanburg and Greenville counties, particularly those who are moving into our area right around us. Lord, may this little church, which has been here, sometimes struggling, more or less faithful for 180 years, may this church continue to be a light to the nations as a city set upon a hill. Lord, make us to be salt and light to our neighbors, our family members, our friends, and teach us your ways that we would walk in them with joy and with thanksgiving of heart. We pray for those who are absent from us this morning with various illnesses and afflictions. Please heal them and restore their strength. We pray for those who are traveling or ministering elsewhere. We pray that you would uh, lend them your spirit and grant them power from on high and fruitfulness to their ministry. And we pray particularly for Dr. Piper as he prepares to preach again this evening. Sustain him and grant him strength and the power of the Holy Spirit and the reading and preaching of the word. We ask all this for the glory of the triune God. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.